We're going to have our reading now, and it's taken from John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Let me add my welcome. My name is Christopher Ash. I'm one of the members of this church, and it's lovely to have you with us. Uh, it's our normal practice to um, look at parts of Bible books or whole Bible books together on Sundays here at Christchurch Mayfair. And today we start a new series looking through a little part of John's Gospel. Let's uh, pray as we sit, as you sit, uh, for God's help. God, our Father, please help me to be faithful and true to your truth and help us as we hear to respond with humility and faith in Jesus' name. Amen. If only there were a place to which I could go to find heaven on earth. A place where I could find if there is a god or goddess or gods or some transcendent power, some power above us, some place where I could go and get access to that. That desire, I guess, is pretty much universal. I was just reading over my cereal this morning at breakfast, the philosopher Roger Scruton saying that, that, that all over the world... People have a sense of sacredness, that there are sacred places in some sense, or we hope that there are sacred places. That's why we have temples. A temple is a place on earth where you can access heaven. At least that's what they promise. The Babylonian ziggurats going climbing up towards heaven, the old Khmer temples at uh, Angkor Wat in Cambodia going up and up towards heaven, Hindu temples, Buddhist temples, Sikh temples, Islamic mosques, Christian shrines, Lourdes, Compostela, Christian cathedrals. There's this sense that if you go to these places, you will go to a place where there is, it is a kind of temple and you have access to heaven. Of course, in our culture, we have quasi Temples. So the Romantics love the the garden. I'm nearer to God in a garden than anywhere else on earth. That kind of thing. If I go somewhere like that, then I'll be close 
to God, get access to God, or the strange quasi-temple of the shopping mall, or the financial temple, the shard, the, 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 the big high-rise banking financial block. And all of them in their different ways say to us, they promise us, if you come here, you will be able to pray, you'll be able to seek and find what you seek, what you want, what you long for. Here will be a place uh, where it's worth making a pilgrimage here. It's a universal desire, a longing for a temple. At least that, that they promise heaven on earth, but what they promise they can't perform. And you go to any of those places, and you may find, if you're lucky, a measure of beauty. You may find some peace. You may find the odd bit of truth. You may find some inspiration, some awe. But you stay there very long, and you'll find backbiting and gossip. You'll find people in it for what they get out of it. You'll find people there to make a profit. You'll find people abusing their power. Whatever the religion, they may be abusing their power financially. They may be abusing their power sexually. They may be abusing power in all sorts of ways. You'll find people using religion as a mask for nationalism or racism or selfish gain. And even if by some strange chance you found the perfect temple, if you take yourself there, you'll have spoiled it. So we long for temples, but uh, at their very best... They're like a waxwork of Usain Bolt. You, you can imagine a waxwork. I don't know if there is one in Madame Tussauds, and it says fastest sprinter on earth. Well, it looks like the fastest sprinter on earth, but it's a waxwork. It doesn't do what it promises. It may look the part, but it's not the real thing. Come back with me, 20 or so centuries to one of the most famous temples in human history, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. First built by King Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians when they invaded about 600 or so BC, and then gradually rebuilt in the years that followed. And that temple, in what we call the Old Testament, was promised to be the place where God's feet touch earth, in the language, the place where heaven touches earth, where the place where you can go to find heaven on earth, to find access to God. So come with me on a normal day. It's a busy day, shortly before the big annual Passover festival, time when the population of Jerusalem increased by a factor of about 10. So it's a crowded place, a busy day, but it's a normal day in other, in other ways. At the center, there's the temple building itself, and surrounding it, there are various courtyards. And if you look in these courtyards, you're watching with me, you see a sort of hubbub, you'll see all sorts of animals and birds being brought for sacrifice. You'll see priests and temple assistants and people and a great hubbub of worshippers and all the normal stuff of daily temple life. But look... Over there, there seems to be some kind of disturbance. Look, there's someone over there. He looks like some kind of a rabbi or religious teacher, and he looks indignant. Look, he's making a whip, a makeshift whip out of cords. Look, he's whipping the animals, the sheep and so on. He's whipping them so that they're driven out of the courtyard. Look, he's whipping the people as well. 
Look, the place where they, they change the money and you buy and sell stuff and you change the currency. Look, he's, he's tipped the tables up. There's coins everywhere. Whoa. That's going to cause trouble. And listen. He seems to be saying something indignant and angry to some of those people. He's saying, how dare you? How dare you turn my father's house into a house of trade, a market? How dare you? Get out. Well, that's going to cause trouble. And sure enough, it does. And before long, we see a little group of authority figures standing around him, gathering around him, and they're not happy. And they say to him something like this, you need permission to do something like this. You can't just walk in here and start turning the tables over and spreading the coins out and whipping people. You can't do that. And you need, you need big permission to do this. You need more than your driving license and a police permit to do this. You need, this is God's house. You need God's permission to do this. You need really big permission to do this. You need evidence that you're doing this because God's given you authority to do it. You need to give us a miraculous sign. You know, heal the sick, raise the dead, that kind of stuff. You do that and then we'll know that you're okay to do this and we'll roll over and and agree that it's the right thing to do. Now listen, he's answering them. Okay, he says, I'll give you the sign you want. Are you listening? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. There's a stunned silence. The complex of buildings where they are, the Jewish temple, is in the middle of a huge redevelopment project started by Herod the Great in about 2019 BC. And for the last, you know, 46 years, it's it's been massive great building project. I remember visiting the um, site some years ago, and you could see a few of these stones that had been excavated. And they were huge. And you read in Mark's Gospel, the, the, the people exclaiming, massive stones, magnificent buildings. It was a humongous great building project. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world, really. And you say, if we knock it down, you can build it in three days. You need sectioning. So what's going on? Well, when Jesus' friend John tells the story, as he does in John chapter 2, he gives us two clear clues. He divides the story in two. First of all, the disturbance, and the clue is the word zeal, and then the question and answer that follows. So first of all, the disturbance. This is from verse 13 through to 17. What's going on? Jesus says, how dare you? How dare you turn my father's house? He calls God my father. It's a strange, remarkable way to speak. How dare you turn that into a market, literally a house of trade? Now, the problem is this. It's, there's nothing wrong with trade. If you're in a job that involves buying and selling and making a profit, that's fine. 
so long as you're honest. And some of these guys may have been honest. We don't know that they weren't. Some of them were, some of them probably weren't. But that wasn't the problem. What's the problem? The problem is that this house, this temple, this place was meant to be my father's house. That is to say, it was meant to be a place where human beings can access God, where their sins can be covered by sacrifice, where they can pray. It was meant to be, as it were, a vertical relationship with God kind of place. And they've done what religion always does, which is to metamorphose a relationship with God place, a place of prayer and access to God, into a horizontal place of, in this case, buying and selling and trade. Now, that's always what happens with religion. I may say that it's about bowing down to God, but it always ends up with serving me. It doesn't matter if I'm a Buddhist priest, Muslim imam, a Christian minister or pastor or bishop, a church secretary or treasurer, an elder, Bible study group leader. It doesn't matter who I am and whatever the religion. However I go into it, before long, I'm in it for what I get out of it. Before long, I'm in it. It may be financial because I make a good living from it. It may be popularity, people think well of me and praise me. Maybe respect and honor and a position in the community. He's the church treasurer, he's church secretary. Maybe, maybe that kind of thing. It may be power. I get invited into people's lives. They take me into their confidence. That gives me power and I like that. It may just be that I enjoy the feeling of comfortableness, the safety. I enjoy the buzz, perhaps, of the music and the conversation. There are all sorts of reasons, but I'm in it for what I get out of it. It always happens. Except for this one man. This is the one man in human history for whom zeal for his father's house, passionate care for the honor of God, was pure and unmixed by any um, unworthy motives. And so later on, if you look at the passage, you'll see uh, in verse 17, his disciples remembered, much later, they remembered that it's written. They remembered some words from a psalm, Psalm 69. Zeal for your house, the temple, will consume me. Psalm 69, if you turn it up later in the day, perhaps, and read it, it's about a persecuted believer who loves God and is concerned and zealous for the honor of God and is persecuted for it. And when he says, zeal for your house will consume me, there's a kind of double meaning to that. He's saying, zeal for your house will be an all-consuming thing in me. It will define me. That will be what gets me out of bed in the morning. That will be the driver of my life. It will be an all-consuming thing. I will have no mixed motives. But it's also an ominous word. And you read the psalm and that's very clear. It will consume me in the sense that my zeal for God, my desire to worship and honor God, 
purely because he is God, he's not going to get me anything very good. In fact, it's going to cause me a bundle of trouble. It will consume me. It will devour me. It will lead to my being eaten up and destroyed and killed. And that is exactly what happened. This little incident, and I think it probably was quite a little incident in the temple, happened right near the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. We read through John's Gospel, and this is the first Passover of his public ministry. He's been in public ministry perhaps for a few, year, a few, few months, we don't know quite how long before that. And this Passover happens. You read on in John's Gospel, there's a second Passover in chapter 6, when Jesus is not in Jerusalem, he's up in the north. And then two years later, there's a third Passover. And at the third Passover, it seems from the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as though he does this, this temple incident thing again. Uh, perhaps a bit more high profile in some way. And on that third Passover... His zeal for God's house does indeed consume him, and he is killed, and he's killed for that zeal. And that's what his disciples remembered later. They remembered that in the man they mixed with over those months and years, there was not the mixed motives that you find in any of us, any of us have mixed motives, don't, don't we? Some of the time we sort of want good things. We sort of maybe are concerned about God in some way. And yet all mixed in with that, there's all sorts of selfish things about I'm in it for what I can get out of it. But as they mixed with this man, they saw here a zeal, a single-hearted zeal and desire for the honor of God, my father, my father's house, my father's honor, my father's reputation, that was utterly unmixed with anything else. It was unique in human history. But it put him into collision course with human society. So there is the first clue, that zeal that led to his death. Here's the second clue. Verse 18 onwards, they ask the question, what are you doing What's your authority? What sign can you give? Verse 18. If you've been reading through John's Gospel, you know there's an irony there, because the last thing we read as readers of John's Gospel in the first bit of chapter 2 was a wonderful sign of water being turned into wine in Cana in Galilee. And if you read on the beginning of next week's passage, you'll see a reference to the fact that he's actually doing lots of signs. Lots of healings and exorcisms and all sorts of wonderful things he is doing. So there's an irony there. But they ask for a sign to prove authority. And what Jesus does is this. He makes this strange statement. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they make the obvious objection, verse 20. This project's been going 46 years. You think you're going to make it uh, rebuild it in three days. But, verse 21, here is what John and the other followers of Jesus realized when they thought about this later. At the time, they didn't get it, but later they thought about it. The temple that he was speaking about was his body. Destroy this temple. Jesus' enemies didn't destroy the physical temple in Jerusalem. The Romans did that 40 years or so later. Uh, 
pretty thoroughly. But they did destroy Jesus two years later. And Jesus is saying, this temple has the shape of access to heaven on earth. The stuff here in the symbolism and the altars and the sacrifices and the holy of holies and all the the shape and the symbolism of the temple, it has the shape of heaven on earth, but it's not the real thing. And you know that because the people who are there are in it for what they get out of it. But I, he, he, he says in effect, as I walk around on earth, I am the living presence of God on earth. I am the one who has in reality that pure zeal for the honor of God that no other human being has had before or since. Destroy this temple, destroy me, destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it up. And after his resurrection, you see verse 22, after his resurrection, his disciples remembered that and they believed the truth. Every human attempt at a temple will be destroyed. Every Sikh temple will be destroyed. Every mosque will be destroyed. Every Christian cathedral will be destroyed. Every building of every religion will be destroyed. They will all fall down. Because none, even at their very best, at their worst, they're hideous things. But even at their very best, they can have no more than the shape of heaven on earth. Now that was true of the Jerusalem temple, which was the best of the lot. But this man is the living presence of God on earth uniquely. Destroy him, and it won't be long before he's raised It's a wonderful thing. Jesus is a wonderful, wonderful man. And in a sense, what John is doing as he tells the story of his gospel, he's just told us the first sign, water into wine at Cana, and now he points forward to the last sign, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what do we take away from this? We take away something very strong and wonderful about Jesus. We take away that in Jesus Christ there was a pure zeal for God, that he was not in it for what he got out of it. What did he get out of it? Hostility, opposition, suffering, shame, death on a Roman cross. He didn't get popularity, he didn't get sex, he didn't get power, he didn't get money. He didn't get any of the things that people can be in religion for. He didn't get comfort. He didn't get safety. All he got was suffering because he cared purely for his father's honor. And the resurrection of Jesus is the proof, the bodily, historical, verifiable, well-attested proof that if you had seen him, you would have seen all that it is possible to see of God the Father on earth. Jesus is that temple. He has made him known. But it still leaves the question for us, and I want to think about this before I finish. What do we take away from this now? 
So in a sense, all we've seen so far is that if you and I had been in the right place on earth at the right time, we could have rubbed shoulders with the living presence of God on earth. There would have been a place to which we could have gone to have access to heaven on earth if we'd been with Jesus. But there's no place on earth now that you can go and find Jesus in his body. And it looks as if we've missed our chance. And so I just want to push it a little bit further for us and to ask the question, is there anywhere we can go now to find the true temple? What does it mean to say Jesus is the true temple? And the Bible, you read John's gospel uh, further on, and, and, and he, he, he makes it, it, it clear that Jesus is dying as the Passover lamb to pay the punishment for our evil and wrongdoing. And that because of that, through faith in his name, his spirit is given to all who trust in him. And baptism, as we've been thinking this morning, so movingly, so wonderful to see Tom and Dominic and Nagar and Muhammad baptized, One of the things that symbolizes is that new life of the spirit of Jesus coming into the heart of a forgiven man or woman. That's a wonderful thing. And what that means is that real Christian people, for all our mixed upness, are men and women in whom the spirit of Jesus dwells are men and women who, particularly together as Christian churches, are, in a sense, God's temple under construction. That's how the New Testament speaks of it. Paul and Peter, in uh, three of their letters, speak about the Christian church as being God's temple, being built under construction. And that means that if you belong to a real Christian church where the gospel of Jesus is taught, you are in a place which is a temple under construction, not the building. It doesn't matter what the building is, but when you have that regular gathering of men and women hearing the Bible taught, praying in Jesus' name, loving one another, loving others, for all the mixed upness, you are in the presence of a temple under construction. Now I want to give us some things to take away uh, this morning. And the first is a sense of wonder that in Jesus and only in Jesus, because only Jesus has ever shown that pure zeal for my father's house, only Jesus has ever been in religion, not for what he got out of it, but purely because he loved his father. In Jesus, it is possible to have access to God. In Jesus, we do find what temples promise. In Jesus, we do find that it is possible to pray on the basis not of our goodness, but of Jesus' zeal and Jesus' purity. And God the Father will hear us. A sense of wonder. Second, a sense of realism. There are some so-called Christian churches where you will not really find any of that. 
You'll find some Christian churches which are really a slightly religious edition of secular society, where there is no real gospel preaching and teaching and challenge, where the Bible isn't opened and taught, where there isn't life-changing repentance and faith and sacrificial love. And those places are frauds. They're not real churches. You won't ever find a church which is pure and perfect. And as has often been said, if we did, we would spoil it by joining it. But you will find mixed churches, and I trust and take it that this is one, where the gospel of Jesus is, so far as we can, taught and the challenge is heard and the promises are heard and the Bible is opened and, and so on and we pray in Jesus' name and there is some measure of life change and love and that's a wonderful thing. But just remember the cost. And it's very appropriate on this morning of baptisms to think about this. The zeal of Jesus that was prepared to set him against all the powerful people and the influential people of his day, consumed him. It devoured him. It led to suffering and death. And on a day of baptisms, it's very good to remember that, isn't it? A day when we've prayed for that young mother in the Sudan. A day when we've seen two baptized from Muslim backgrounds, a day when we remember that all over the world, the day a man or woman is baptized is the day when they come under sentence of death. And it's good to remember that even those of us for whom that is not so obviously the case, if in some measure the Spirit of God puts into our hearts a real zeal for God, and begins to purify our motives so that we're in our Christian discipleship, not for what we can get out of it, but simply out of love for God, the Father of Jesus, who has become our Father, then that zeal will carry a cost, and it will in some measure consume us and devour us, and there will be a cost. We've heard this morning from Muhammad about losing his job. But for all of us, there will be a cost that is attached to zeal for God. But lastly, I want us to remember that future resurrection is the proof. Destroy this temple, says Jesus, of his body, and in three days I'll raise it. And he did. And that bodily resurrection was the proof that he is who he said he was. Friends, if you are a real believer in Jesus Christ there will be a day of resurrection for you and for me. And on that day, it will be publicly seen that you and I are men and women in whom the Spirit of Jesus lives. Because men and women in whom the Spirit of Jesus lives are ultimately indestructible, just as the Lord Jesus himself was ultimately indestructible. And that's a great encouragement to us. I wish I could find a temple on earth, a place where heaven meets earth. You could have done if you've been there with Jesus in his earthly ministry. It will be true at the end when Jesus returns, and in some measure it is true now in the presence of all in whom the Spirit of Jesus lives because they trust in him. And that is a wonderful thing.
It's a thing no philosophy, no atheism, no religion in the world can match, but it's a wonderful thing and a true thing. Let's be quiet for a moment, and I'll pray, and then uh, hand back to Phil. Father, we thank you that when we destroyed the temple, the presence of God on earth in Jesus, he bore our sin in his body, and our sins may be forgiven, and in his name we may have access to you and call you Father. We pray that we might rejoice in that. We pray that those who are hearing about this, perhaps for the first time, might come to the point where this is true for them too. And we pray that our lives, as we face the cost of discipleship, might nonetheless be marked by confidence and joy in Jesus. In his name. Amen.